series. If you are new, we want you to know that we just don't select a text that we feel good about that morning, but we usually go through a book or a series, and we're covering a series on God's laws for living, the Ten Commandments. Today we cover the Second Commandment. As you're opening your Bibles and getting settled, just a word that now that the service has begun, we ask you to stay for the remainder of it. It won't be long. So we ask you to sit and enjoy it and uh, study God's Word with us. Father, we come to you and we ask that you'd open the eyes of our understanding that we might know the depth of your love, your holiness, and we might know, Lord, how we might please you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a book that was made into a movie. The book was called Out of Africa. The author of the book recalls the time when one of her servants, Kamante, came to wake her up and explained something strange that happened. One night after midnight, Kamante suddenly walked into my bedroom with a hurricane lamp in his hand, silent, as if on duty. It must have been only a short time after he came into my house, for he was very small, and he stood at my bedside like a dark bat that had strayed into the room, with big spreading ears, or like a small African will-o'-wisp, with his lamp in his hand. He spoke very solemnly. Sabu, he said, I think you had better get up. I sat up in my bed bewildered. I thought that if anything serious had happened, it would have been Farah who would have come to fetch me. But when I told Kamante to go away again, he did not move. Sabu, he said again, I think you had better get up. I think that God is coming. When I heard this, I did get up. I asked why he thought so. He gravely led me into the dining room, which looked to the west, toward the hills. From the door windows, I now saw a strange phenomenon. There was a big grass fire going on out in the hills, and the grass burning all the way from the top of the hill to the plain, which, when seen from the house, looked like a vertical line. It did indeed look as if some gigantic figure was moving and coming toward us. I stood for some time and looked at it, with Kamante watching by my side. Then I began to explain the thing to him. I meant to quiet him, for I thought that he had been terribly frightened. But the explanation did not seem to make much impression on him one way or the other. He clearly took his mission to have been fulfilled when he had called me. Well, yes, he said, it may be so, but I thought that you had better get up, just in case it was God who was coming. The second commandment gives us the idea that there is nothing that can capture the image of God, what He looks like. Now, no matter how sophisticated we are or think we are spiritually, we all have a basic longing as Christians to one day see the face of God. Moses said, show me your glory, O Lord. Children often ask parents, what does God look like? My son, in trying to grasp with the idea of God, speaks in terms of infinity. He says God is infinity years old, God is infinity feet tall. The idea of what God looks like to him is incomprehensible. Um, Complete this sentence in your own mind. The sentence would be, I picture God like blank, whatever that would be. Fill in the blank. I picture God like, or if I were God, I would, 
Now, a lot of people say that one. Whatever answer you come up with will be very revealing. It will reveal a correct or an incorrect concept. For terms that meet the text, image of God. Now, some will say, well, you know, I picture God as this big artist who created nice things for us. Not a judge, but a nice artist. Other God will say, I picture God as a female. So the bumper sticker that I showed you a couple weeks ago, in goddess we trust. Others will say, no, uh, I picture God as sort of a celestial Santa Claus who smiles and lets me do anything I want to do and lets me live any way I want to live. J.I. Packer, the theologian, reminds us, mental images are simply the consequence of mental images. Now with that in mind, let's look at our text. Second commandment, verse 4, picks it up. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment is not as some have supposed, a repetition of the first or an amplification of the first. They're entirely separated. The first commandment deals with whom we should worship. The second commandment deals with how we should worship. We should first worship the only true unique God. We are not pantheists. We are not polytheists. We are not henotheists. We worship one true God. The second commandment tells us how we ought to do it. It assumes that we have worship of the true God, but it forbids false worship of the true God. In other words, man does not have the latitude to select any way he wants to worship God and picture God in a certain kind of an image apart from the way God reveals himself. The text in these verses present themselves in two different ways. First of all, we have the prohibition against false worship. Then we have the proclamation of the true God. Prohibition against false worship, proclamation of the true God. The first is the prohibition. You shall not. And you notice that many commandments say you shall not, but this one then gives you something positive at the end. You shall not make for yourself any carved, or as the original king Jimmy says, graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them to serve them. Now, strict Orthodox Jews viewed this scripture as a prohibition against any kind of an image. And when the Christian church started manufacturing images and art, they saw that as breaking of this commandment. Uh, there's a story about Pontius Pilate. It's not in the New Testament, but it's in history. That when Pontius Pilate took over his being procurator of the Jews in southern area of Israel. He made a mistake. He had his men march through Jerusalem carrying ensigns with the image inscription of Caesar on the ensigns, which offended the Jews. They saw the second commandment was being broken. An image of a man is being set out in Jerusalem. So a delegation was formed. They appealed to Pontius Pilate. They said, look, 
You know we're Jews. This offends us. Take down the ensigns. Pontius Pilate had his soldiers herd all of the Jewish delegation into an amphitheater, take their swords out and say, if you don't be quiet, we'll kill you. We'll chop your heads off. Pontius Pilate had no idea how the Jews would respond. He was shocked when they bared their necks, fell to the ground. They said, kill us. That's how strictly they took this commandment. You shall not have a graven image before you. Now, with that as a background, one of the first questions people ask is, is it okay to have art in my house? Is it okay to have some kind of an inscription, some kind of an art form? Is God saying, no photographs? Hey, there are groups of Christians who believe that it's absolutely unscriptural to have your picture taken or to have in their house somebody else's photograph because they're breaking the second commandment. The idea is not beautiful works of art, inscriptions or paintings for that purpose. If it were, then God violated His own commandment. Because a few chapters later, God commands the beautiful works of tapestry, angels that will be embroidered upon the curtains of the tabernacle to adorn it. Then in the very Holy of Holies, there's the image of cherubim that are bowing their faces toward the mercy seat. On the ephod of the high priest were works of art, embroidered works. There was the breastplate that was put on top of the ephod. There were bells and pomegranates that hang from the bottom of the ephod. The idea here is not art. Uh, verse 5 explains, the idea is worship. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So the idea was making something in the skies or in the earth or under the earth to represent God for the aid of worship. The holy God forbids the representation of God by earthly means. Now why is that? The basic simple reason is that God is spirit. He is not material. You cannot confine God or box Him up by some kind of an image. Jesus to the woman at Samaria, when she said, Okay, look, we worship on this mountain. You guys choose Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Which is it? Jesus said it's irrelevant. For God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It would help if you understood the way pagans saw images to understand this commandment more fully. In the ancient times, and believe it or not, still today in parts of the world, when a person would make an image out of stone or wood or metal, they would take the image and consecrate it to their God. At the moment they dedicate the image to their God, something happens. The spirit of that God infuses the very icon that they have created. And the God becomes identified with it. And so, if there is worship or ceremony, it is perceived by the God through the image. In ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, they had ceremonies where they would take their images and wash them, bathe them, dress them up for certain festivals and ceremonies. They would offer food offerings. They would actually put food in front of the image. You think, that's kind of dumb. They can't eat it. But they believed, actually, they could, that a certain amount of energy was derived from the food that was placed in front of them. In India today, you see statues all over the place. They have the statues of Shiva, the statues of Kali, and the like, and people will bow down to them. If, if you say, that's just a stupid image, they will say, no, it is not. My God resides powerfully through that image. 
And if you'll observe worship in these Hindu lands long enough, you will often see the worshippers deriving a certain amount of power out of it themselves. They get into a frenzy uh, where they will not even feel pain that is inflicted on their bodies after a period of worship, probably infused by the demon god that's behind this statue. It's still prevalent today. Now, this commandment, not to make an image, was not something God tacked on to the Ten Commandments. It's not like, oh yeah, you know, i got to have ten and i got nine, so I'll, I'll write that in there before I get to the rest. It was very important to God. He repeated it so often in the Old Testament. Don't have time to go through all the passages, but let me give you an amplification of this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'll read it to you. God says, You saw no form of any kind on the day that God spoke to you out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image, any shape, whether in the likeness of man or woman, or the likeness on earth or any bird that flies in the air or any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. A couple chapters later, Deuteronomy 27, the Lord says, Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol. A thing is detestable to the Lord, the work of a craftsman's hands, and then sets it up in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. So? All right. Well, some of the people said it. The rest of you aren't sure. Israel, though they were given this command repeatedly, fell from this command repeatedly. At the very same time this commandment was given, what were the children of Israel doing back at the camp? Making an image, a golden calf, with Aaron and the other leaders. Jeroboam, some years later, when the kingdom splits, makes two calves of gold, sets one up at Dan and one in the middle of the country at Bethel. So the people don't have to go down to Jerusalem. They look at the image. And Aaron and Jeroboam both said, looking at the image, this is the God which delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. Here he is. You can see him and look at him. It's ironic. The exact same time Moses is receiving this commandment, they're violating it. John Wesley was right. He said, in his natural state, every man born into the world is a rank idolater. Now there's a tendency to have some visual representation. Why? Why is there the tendency? For a couple reasons, I think. Number one, whenever a person casts an image for worship purposes, it indicates, I believe, that that person has lost the conscious awareness of the presence of God and he needs a reminder. If a person is walking in communion with the Lord and fellowship with the Lord, he knows that God is alive. He doesn't need a prop. He doesn't need to walk by some kind of a cast image and go, Oh, yes, God, there he is. I'm reminded. He's alive. I'm to dedicate myself to him. Thanks for the reminder. I'll go on. A person who needs that shown that he has fallen from the conscious awareness of the presence of God. Of course, that's a simple, for some, a simplistic answer to the argument when people say God is dead. Oh, God is dead. Well, no, he's not. I just talked to him this morning. He's very much alive, and I didn't need a prop to prompt me. Intimate fellowship with him. 
Friedrich Jacobi said, where idolatry ends, Christianity begins. Where Christianity begins, idolatry will end. Now there's a second reason why people make graven images. I think we'll be able to relate to this. We have a problem with an invisible God. And I bet if you were really honest with yourself, you'd say, yeah, that's true, I am. I have a problem with that. It's hard to have a personal relationship when you can't see the person that you're having the relationship with. It's a whole lot easier as interpersonal beings to relate to others that have the senses perceptibly that we have. But to have a personal relationship with a person that you can't see is tough. That's why Moses said, God, show me your glory. I've heard about it. Show it to me. David cried out and he said, let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. That's one of the reasons Christians look to the future. It's great serving the Lord now, but one day we'll see Him. And so the Apostle says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Do you remember the old H.G. Wells fantasy story, The Invisible Man? Another book that was put into movie form many, many, many times. They get worse as the movies go on. But the idea is that some guy came through scientific means to come up with a potion that would make him invisible. Sounds great at first. You think, oh, that'd be great. I'd have a lot of fun if I were invisible. I could sneak into people's homes and just have all sorts of fun. I would know what they're talking about. I could rule the world. But it backfires on the guy. He finds it's not so great to be invisible. Moreover, the other people who know him don't trust him. Nor does he trust other people because he feels that he could be exploited. It's a problem to relate to someone who's invisible. For this reason, people of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church, if you ever get a chance to get to that part of the world, in their cathedrals, they are ridden with icons. They are all over the place. And if you were to speak to an Eastern Orthodox, and as he is talking or praying before this image, he would tell you, I'm not praying to an image. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is embodied in this image. And as I pray in front of this, I am encountering the living Christ. That is their belief system regarding images. See, people want a God that they can feel, touch, and display. And I think for those two basic reasons, we have that tendency to do this. Some of you are thinking, so what? Skip, what's the big deal? Why are you getting all sermonized about casting images for worship? First of all, let me let myself off the hook. I didn't say it. I'm just reading it, so I'm all right. But if you want to turn that question correctly, God, why are you so hung up? about not having an image in worship. If it helps somebody focus their attention on you, why would you have a prohibition? Moreover, why the language of verse 5? It says, I am a jealous God. If it helps a guy, don't get hung up on it. So what? Let him do it. You see, there's a problem right there in that kind of thinking. Did you pick up on it? We are relegating the worship of God to personal taste. It's always dangerous to do that, especially since God said, I am above your thoughts. As the heavens is high above the earth, so far is the Lord above us. He transcends us. Why this prohibition? Well, first of all, images dishonor God because they obscure His glory. 
Images dishonor God because they obscure His glory. Think about it. What image have you ever seen that perfectly portrays the character of God? Have you ever found one that tells you all, reveals all of the truth about God embodied in that image? No, it's limited. Whatever they make as an image to portray God, it's a limited portrayal of who God is. One of the essential qualities of God is that He is unlimited. To cast an image and say that represents God is taking away part of His essence. That God is transcendent and God is limitless. Now Aaron made a golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain and sees these people worshiping at this golden calf. When Aaron made this calf, or literally bull, the idea was probably not to obscure the glory of God, but to demonstrate it. Because their God was a strong God. And the bull in ancient time represented strength. Unconquerable strength. And so as I make my God into the image of a bull, it speaks of how strong God was. And Aaron was saying, Look, children of Israel, this is the God who delivered you out of Egypt. The strong God opened the Red Sea. The strong God sent plagues on the Egyptians. But it didn't work that way. Because as you look at that bull, though it might speak of strength, and by the way, the Egyptians had a bull in their worship, Apis the bull god, the god of strength. And no doubt Aaron is saying, our God is better than your God. He's stronger. We left you guys way behind in the Red Sea, and God's leading us, and here's his strength. But looking at that bull did not tell the whole truth about God. It said nothing about God's moral character, his love, his patience, his long-suffering, as we read about in verse 6, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and who will keep my commandments. Now, what I'm about to say... I feel, especially in this part of the country, that I am tiptoeing through a minefield. And uh, I I should preface it by saying I'm not purposely trying to detonate bombs, though I'm sure I'll pick up some shrapnel along the way. I also say this as someone who has come from the background. Now, if I set up a crucifix... If I do, and I have in the past, if I set up an image of Jesus Christ on a cross, first of all, I am portraying the greatest act of love that has ever been displayed to the world. That crucifix is a wonderful picture of God giving the greatest gift of His Son to the earth to die for our sins. You can't come up with a greater act of love. But... Though that crucifix displays the dying Jesus, it does not speak to me of the living Jesus. It is part of the character, part of the plan. Good, yes. I I have no problem with what a crucifix depicts at all. My problem is with what it fails to depict. It doesn't tell the whole story. It says nothing of deity and victory and life that Jesus came. Now, does that mean that we should start hanging empty tombs around our neck? No, I don't think so. Because again, that's just a portion of the character of God. Bottom line is this. Get all of the images you want to. Search the world over. Get every single image ever carved, every picture ever made of God or of Jesus. Put them together. Will all of those pictures adequately represent fully the character of God? No. God knowing that says don't even use them. It's not don't have art in your house or have things that hang or 
uh, reflect artistic value. The idea is for the purpose of worship or cueing you in worship. You should not worship or bow down to them, the likeness of these things. You know, i got to say that I am glad we don't know what Jesus looked like. I'm glad that there weren't cameras in those days. I personally think, I don't have a picture in my mind, but I think that Jesus probably physically was not attractive. Because in Isaiah 53, predicting the Messiah, it says He has no form or comeliness, no beauty that we should desire Him when we look at Him. Have you noticed how pictures of Jesus have changed over the years? They're very different. And depending on what culture you go into, they're very different. In the 1950s in America, Jesus was portrayed as very pale, gaunt, very frail, white, with glowing hair or a halo. And that was the depiction in the pictures of Jesus. In the 60s and 70s, it changed. Most of the pictures had him portrayed like kind of a college radical. Now, in in the recent pictures that I've seen of Jesus in religious stores, Jesus looks very upwardly mobile. His haircut is very 90s. He's very westernly hep looking. Truth is, we don't know what he looks like. And you know what? I don't care what he looks like. Now, yes, Jesus himself, it says, is the image of the invisible God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the idea isn't, now you guys remember the etchings of my face so that you can put them down so that people can remember. His character reflects the character and essence of God. And so it was Aquinas who said, not even to a statue of Christ is any reverence owed since it is only a piece of carved wood. Well put. Secondly, not only do images obscure the glory of God, but they can mislead men, as J.I. Packer tells us. They can mislead men. Psychologists do tell us that whatever image or picture you focus on as what you view God as, if you focus on that picture, that eventually what will happen is you come to think of your God based upon that image only. It's kind of your mind runs in a track and gets caught in that image of the God in the image that you worship. Turn over to Exodus chapter 32. Turn right... Exodus chapter 32. It will show this point graphically that what we believe will determine how we behave. Verse 1, chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered to Aaron and said to him, Come, let us make gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt... We don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. And then they arose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now let me read that last verse in the Living Bible, which describes the setting a little bit better. 
they began offering burnt offerings and peace offerings to this calf idol. Afterwards, they sat down to feast, drink at a wild party, followed by sexual immorality. As they viewed this golden calf who represented strength, they felt the only way to worship him was with great strength and vigor. They worked themselves into a frenzy, and eventually it led to debauchery and sexual immorality. Images can mislead men because they obscure the glory of God. I have noticed that people who carry uh, images of the suffering Christ, and there are several countries where these things are very prevalent, in the Philippines and uh, parts of Europe, and they have this picture very graphically of the sufferings of Christ. The worshipers who focus in on the image of the suffering Christ feel led to worship much like the image they depict with great suffering. Some will crawl on their knees till their knees are bloody or walk till their feet are bloody or whatever in a morbid kind of a fashion because the image that they have of their Savior is limited to His suffering. Folks, it is always better to know the truth even if a fancy or an imagination makes us feel good temporarily. It's always better to know the truth. I heard a story of a Scottish couple, never flown on an airplane. They wanted to see their grandchildren in New York City. I don't know if you've ever flown with people who had their first experience with an airplane while you sat next to them. I have. It is a lot of fun. But uh, this couple was flying from Scotland to New York on a Lockheed TriStar, three engines aboard this plane. As the jet aircraft was halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, they heard a noise followed by that calm reserve that airline pilots are so good at in times of crisis. They said, ladies and gentlemen, we inform you that one of our engines has failed. Not to worry, he said. We will arrive at JFK International Airport, but we will be an hour late. People sighed, a great sigh of relief, went on with their meal, an hour later heard another noise. Captain comes on, says, we regret to inform you that engine number two has failed. We're going to make it to JFK, but we're going to be about three hours late. At that point, the elderly Scottish man turns to his wife and says, you know, if that third engine goes, we're going to be up here all night. (laughs) At that point, that's a comforting thing to think about, perhaps, in lieu of death. The truth of the matter is, third engine goes, you're going to be an anchor (laughs) under the sea. The basic danger here, the basic danger, is placing your imagination above God's revelation. That's basically what an image or an idol or an icon is. Iconography is simply placing man's imagination above the revelation of God. It's bringing God down to our comfortable size so that He's manageable. Our own fantasy. Uh, In Kyoto, Japan, I found an article that a guy gave me. Kyoto, Japan, there's an interesting temple, unusual. It's called the Temple of the Thousand Buddhas. The Temple of the Thousand Buddhas. The article says, On display inside this shrine are more than a thousand likenesses of Buddha, each just a little different from the others. They are there so that the devotee can come in, find the one that looks the most like himself, and worship it. Very revealing, actually, about the nature of man and worship. Now, what is your mental concept of God? 
Is it limited to an imagination or is it based upon God's revelation? I've known people that think God is a tight-fisted judge who says, you get out of line and you're going to hell. Or a military general who snaps out orders rather than a loving Abba, Heavenly Father. Now, he is a judge, but he's also merciful. I know people who think of God as George Burns because of the movie God. God's this nice guy with glasses and tennis shoes. He'll slap you on the back and say, let's have a cold brewski. Rather than the holy, glorious, separate, unique God that he is, people will often demean God by those images. I was faxed an article by Dr. Robert Selber. I've copied a little bit of it this morning. Out of Future Scan, Santa Monica, California. The article is called Racing Toward 2001. Quote, There are legions of believers out there, but not belongers. Individuals who increasingly feel free to construct their own worldview from many options present in society, rather than being bound by the orthodoxy of their particular faith. Without any brand name loyalty, they are apt to pick up anything from the ever-expanding God shelf. They have their own private religions, basically. George Barna, in a follow-up article, called this a synthetic faith. And he said, It will be fascinating, as we approach the year 2000, to watch people develop these new religious philosophies. In all likelihood, they will seek a blend of elements that will give them a sense of control over life, personal comfort, acceptance, and a lazy, fair-style philosophy. It is likely that from Christianity they will borrow Jesus' philosophy of love and acceptance. From Eastern religions, they'll borrow ideas related to each person being his or her own God, the center of the universe, capable of creating and resolving issues through his or her own power and intelligence. From Mormonism, they will extract the emphasis upon relationships and family toward establishing a greater sense of community. The idea that's prevalent today, the politically correct concept of God is this. Everybody's got his own style. It's a cosmic freeway that we travel on, and you've got your own lane that's all traveling the same direction. It doesn't matter which lane you get into. Some will go faster, some will go slower, some have a, a Volkswagen, some have Mack trucks, but you're all traveling down the same road together. Now with that, look at the last couple verses where we come to a close. We've seen the prohibition against false worship, now the proclamation of the true God. God says, follow it up, verse 5, second part, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who love me, and showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. We must worship God according to the revealed Word of God, not our imagination. You want a picture of God, a portrait of His character? It comes from the Bible. That's how God has chosen to reveal Himself to man. Now, God reveals Himself in a number of ways, through nature, yes, but completely in His Word, more accurately, at least, in His Word. David said in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. But then he said, The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. The heaven declares the glory of God. It says nothing of the love of God, but the word of the Lord is perfect. It's the revelation of who God is. only makes sense. You want to know more about God. You read his book. It's still a bestseller. And God reveals himself through this revelation. I am criticized sometimes 
for having a teaching ministry. There are people who have come here, they have a different background, other churches, and, and they see the worship here and they go, you know, it's just so dead. You need to preach, not teach. You need to jump or uh, move or sweat or blow on people or, or something a little more dramatic than just teaching them the Bible. You want to know about God, you got to know His Word. He reveals Himself through it. The law of the Lord is perfect. In these two verses, we get a two-sided coin of the character of God. He is a judge, yes. He's not a Santa Claus cosmically who just smiles at everything you do. He will judge sin. But the other flip side of the coin is He's a God of mercy who extends mercy to those who call on Him. What does it mean when it says God's a jealous God? That's an important facet. There's a little girl who wrote a letter to God. I had a copy of it in my office. It says, Dear God, what does it mean that you're a jealous God? I thought you had everything. Well, the idea, little Jane, who wrote that letter, is not that God is jealous of something you have and He doesn't. The Hebrew word is kana, which means to be jealous over your own property, something you already own. God is jealous, or as the Young's translation puts it, zealous. The Torah version, a modern Jewish translation, says God is impassioned. The idea is that God is jealous for the love of His kids and correct worship. And jealous is a good translation, by the way. Don't say, oh, bad translation, better scratch it up, put zealous or impassioned. Jealous is a great translation. The same word is used in the Bible of a husband being jealous over his wife. That's a good attribute, by the way. I know that uh, the movies portray it as bad. Well, I can't believe that you're a jealous husband. Any good husband is a jealous husband. He doesn't want rivals. He doesn't want the love being spurned toward another direction. And God, incidentally enough, uses the same metaphor of being jealous over Israel as a wife. In the book of Ezekiel, God said, I will judge you as women who break wedlock are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and in my jealousy. The bottom line is this. God wants worship the way He prescribes it. Nobody has the right to concoct an image of what they think God is and then suitably worship that. David tried. Yuza tried. Remember the time the ark was out in uh, the wilderness of Judea and David said, you know, it shouldn't dwell there. Let's take it from there to Kiry- from Kiriath-Jerim up to Jerusalem. They put it on a covered wagon, for lack of a better uh, term, a, a cart. And they're carting it up to Jerusalem. God commanded that the ark should be carried on poles by priests in a prescribed manner. But David said, ah, you know, who cares? Just stick it on the cart get it going. As it's going down the road, that old cart begins to topple a little bit. Yuza, thinking the best thing to do is to steady the ark, puts his hand out so that it won't fall over and crack. And God strikes him dead. That doesn't mean God condemned him to hell. It simply means God had a message that he prescribes worship. And nobody has the right to tamper with his prescription of worship. You don't need an image. You don't. You've got God himself living in your heart. Why settle for a shadow when you have the substance? It won't help. That means, folks, you can worship God anywhere. You don't have to wait till you're in a great cathedral or you're in the Vatican or you're in the Garden of Gethsemane in Israel. 
or the garden tomb outside of Jerusalem. It means that you can worship God anywhere, anytime. Sing in the shower. Worship God in your car. But don't lift your hands off the wheel and close your eyes. Just make sure that your, your, your eyes are open. Anywhere, anytime. You don't have to get into a certain building. God is transcendent. Something happens when you decide to worship God not based upon your imagination but God's revelation. Because this being the revelation of Himself, God, to mankind, as you study the Bible and you learn more of the character of God, the more homesick you get to see His face. It's almost, it almost gets worse. The more you worship, the more you see what God is really like. You think, oh, I can't wait to see Him face to face. It's very much like when I travel and I carry pictures of my wife and my son. I show them to people that I travel with or people that I meet, but, you know, after a couple weeks of looking at photographs, photographs don't cut it. They're just rectangles of paper upon which is put a color or several colors. I can't hug the picture. The picture doesn't speak to me. It's a representation but I can't wait to go home and see my wife's face and my son's face and give them hugs. And the more you learn about God, the more homesick you get. Back when Oliver Cromwell ruled his land, they were short on silver for making coins. And so Oliver Cromwell told his men to go out through the land and find anything that was of silver that they could make into coins for money. His men came back and they said, Sir, we have not found silver except the statues of the saints in the vast cathedrals, to which Oliver Cromwell quickly replied, Good! Melt down the saints and put them back into circulation. He was a practical man. He was a practical man. He knew that God transcended any image or statue. Melt down those little images or concepts that limit the nature and character of God and grasp fully God has revealed in His book. God wants to reveal Himself more fully to you today. Some of you don't yet personally know Jesus Christ. You've lived only with a limited religious concept, an unfair one that has misled you. And God wants you to come into the personal relationship with the invisible God to whom one day you will see His face if you commit your life to Him. Our Father, we... Thank you for the book, the books of the Bible that are bound together, that we have it, that we see you in it, that you reveal yourself to us. Help us, Lord, help us, Lord, to pay full heed to the principles of this book, to not shortchange ourselves or dishonor you by putting something else in your place or in the place of your word that reveals yourself to us. I pray that we would be a people that rejoice in the truth, not in imagination. And Father, we pray for those who have never made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, who have never come in repentance and grabbed a hold of you by faith. Reach out today, Lord, and bring them to the fold in Jesus' name.